Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I am very excited to have Catherine Favre here today to speak with me about some things that I have not had the opportunity to learn from her one-on-one yet, except for from the shift class that Russ offered last year. And I just really, really enjoyed the way that she was presenting tri-type to us, as well as how to look at people and do typing based off of physical features and mannerisms and things that are directly observable. And so anytime somebody is bringing, I want to say a direct science to the Enneagram, I kind of perk up because whenever we're researching it, whenever we're bringing direct observations, as opposed to intuitive interpretations, which I also think are incredibly valuable, but I think that Catherine being a fellow ENTP, which obviously makes her also very near and dear to my heart, has this introvert thinking capacity and this extroverted intuition where she's observing data that you've been able to pull into some really exciting insights. So is that sort of how you experience your extensive career as it's evolved or what has been the superpower that you're bringing? From the time I was a senior in high school, I was studying typologies quite by chance. I just happened to have a psychology teacher that assigned us research And then I discovered there were so many variables within type, just doing research on empathy. Instead of 10 people, I did well over 100 people. And then I thought, wow, people really do think differently. And then later, I was a manager at a very young age, at 20. They thought I was like 28, 29. And I had the experience needed, but I had it much younger than they would have anticipated And so hired me, but then promoted me right away, but said, the first thing you have to do is take management training classes. You're you're a little rough. You need to (laughs) a little more finesse. And I went, what? Shocking that they'd say that to an eight. (laughs) I go, is this a compliment or criticism? And they said, both. And so I did, and they paid for it. And that started me on a lifelong journey of studying typologies, anything I could find. And I went at least quarterly, if not more often, if I saw more interesting things, I did everything from every perspective you can imagine. And I found Myers-Briggs and many other things. But later, when I had my son in 1976, my pediatrician, who was young, progressive, he handed me an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and said, this guy Ekman thinks babies talk before they actually have a vocabulary and words. And he showed me the picture. I go, no, people do that. That's not just babies. And one thing is that from the time I was seven, I wanted all the little books, the little Dell books on anything having to do with personality, variables, basiology, anything. And my dad would buy them for me. And the first thing I learned about basiology, it's Chinese basiology, was who looked, who showed authority, didn't show authority, 
who was emotional, who wasn't. I mean, many, many key things that then later expanded. But I learned about microexpressions in 1976. And boy, I took a deep dive into that information. And as a manager with other companies, I was later promoted to a position where I handled all the problems everywhere in the country, wherever orders weren't passed, wherever there was a problem, they sent me because I knew all these typologies. Yeah. And being an aide, I was going to be able to negotiate an outcome one way yeah. or the other. But it wouldn't have been as successful if I wasn't really the 874 ENTP with the training. Yeah. Because the person who put me in that position was an 874 ENTP. Oh, so yeah. He recognized himself, and he was a new CEO at the time for Lancôme L'Oreal, Nestle, that whole conglomerate. And the head of the U.S. division was a 478. So it happened because we were the same tri-type. They recognized themselves in me, or it never would have happened. Yeah. It's kind of a fluke. Well, and I, I think that um, I'm strongly resonating with that because I only discovered I was an ENTP this year. I used to mistype as an ENFP. And, you know, when I've ever heard your teachings and the way that you explain things, it just like resonates in my brain in a way that um, is really, really like obvious to me. And I think that when you meet somebody who has similar cognitive processing, there, there is this part that just kind of lights up and is like, oh, I see what you're doing. And I think it almost builds trust because you understand how their mind is working. Yeah. And there's no translation. Yeah. The only translation would be the difference in our Enneagram type. I just want to reflect back that Catherine was sharing that she has had a career in the cosmetics industry where she had a lot of different managerial roles that were really all around managing people. And it was this study of faciology. Am I saying that the right way? That's when I was seven. When you were seven. Okay. What do they call it now? That's still Chinese faciology. Faciology. Okay. As well as all these other typologies, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, and that your tri-type specifically and your cognitive functioning just really enabled you to highly function in these roles whenever there were problems and you could go in and negotiate solutions. And the fact was that these other people in leadership positions shared your trifix as well as your cognitive functioning, which really created a lot of harmony between the two of you. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, except it's tri-type. Tri-type. I keep making that mistake. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. It's based on the whole type, not just the fixation or head. Yeah. Fixed belief of each type. So as an eight, seven, four under tri type, when you're in your head center, you're sort of embodying those aspects of seven. When you're in your heart center, you're embodying those aspects of four. When you're um, your core type and where you come from the body center is the essence of eight. And that's your core type. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your wing? It's the CEO. Well, you see, we have both wings, but one is internalized and one is externalized. Extroverts, we usually identify with the more extroverted wing. Got it. But the way we walk, talk, dress, speak is usually like the wing we identify with. So in my case, it would be seven. So seven wing and seven in a tri-type and ENTP. So yeah, a lot (laughs) A lot of seven. Well, and I just want to name that in the ENTP, I think it's the extroverted intuition that often brings the seven flavor into the personality, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And when you have ENTP and 
depending on your type, it does vary. Like you can be a combative six and be an ENTP, but anybody can be an ENTP. And it's more just looking at the big picture, the little picture, how it works together, and then the network. And what's lost in a lot of trainings and studying on this topic itself is that the ENTP doesn't just have the extroverted intuition and the introverted thinking, but we feel what other people feel. Yeah, because we have that extroverted feeling as our 10-year-old or tertiary function. Yeah, and combining the two. Yeah. You know, the extroverted intuition and the introverted thinking enables us to sense what's really going on on an intuitive level. But it doesn't mean we understand our own feelings. We have to do those later. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because that introverted feeling part for me is seventh function and for you is seventh function, which is why it's, you know, pretty deeply unconscious or they call it that trickster. And so it really, for me, I've had to develop conscious tools to work with my own feelings. And I'm curious, how have you come to work? Yeah. Yeah. I have to think, oh, I'm kind of irritable. What, what's making me irritable? Because I think it's like someone else's fault. And maybe they said or did something. But what I had to learn is that my feelings were hurt in some way, misrepresented. There's nothing worse for an eight than being misrepresented. And if someone misrepresented what I think, what I feel, what I do, then the eight's going to come up and need to correct what that misrepresentation was. So it's a pretty big trigger. I'm curious because, you know, I mistyped as an eight when I was first on my Enneagram journey. And what you said, like, deeply resonates with me. But as I've done my Enneagram work, I've also felt like that's an image center trigger. Like you're not seeing me the way that I want to be seen. So it brings out some assertive, reactive behaviors that can look eight-ish. But the reason that I've landed on three versus eight, I mean, it's a lot of reasons, but I would have to say that I feel a lot squishier than most of the eights that I know. Yeah, we get kind of definite and unemotional when we're triggered. Yes, key distinction between people who mistype as eight and actualates. Yeah, actualates take pride in not losing. Exactly, and I I get emotionally, and and I um actually even feel that I'll like ride that arrow to the low side of six, and anxiety picks up, and there's more of that type of energy that that I feel. And you go to the low side, not just of six, but three as well, because they're always happening together. That was one of the errors in the dissemination of the Enneagram is that you go one, one way yep. and one line the other way. And we're yeah. always, we're always yeah. moving between the type and the lines and the type and the wings. I like the way in the Enneagram prison project community, I've heard this group talk about when they do a check-in, am I above or below the line? And it's like, when I'm below the line, I'm manifesting all of the low side of the types that show up in my personality. When I'm above the line, I can embody a lot of the high sides of that. Is that a way you would interpret it? Yeah, I worked with the Enneagram Prison Project. And oh, okay. That was an important quality for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Just knowing, am I above or below the line to me is like, am I triggered right now? Or do I feel connected, present, and able to operate from a place that I feel better about? <laughs> typically. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. 
And many threes do think they're eights because the need to reach the goal might be so important. And if they have eight in the tri-type or one, it could be either one, they might assert to achieve that goal. And it can look eightish, but it's not, the approach is totally different. Yeah. And it's just, I I call it being task oriented and I'll lose the relationships around me if the task is consuming me. Or if my excitement takes over, I can lose tracking of the people around me if I get too excited as well. So it's interesting. Okay. So we were going to talk today. I'm really glad that we got to just touch at least on tri-type because I think that that's what you're most known for in the community, although I know that you've been involved in so many other areas, especially the subtypes. And that's kind of why I was really curious to learn more about your study of tri-type and subtype. But I was saying I knew you first as tri-type. And then I discovered that you were deeply involved in the work with subtype. And the subtypes have to do with the instinctual drives and that was what spurned my entire creation of this podcast because I was learning about subtype from, you know, Chestnut Pie and John Lukovich and Russ Hudson and Mario Sakura and Deb Uten. And like, there was just like so many different flavors of it out there. And I think that my ENTP brain just kind of lit up with some of the discrepancies. And really what I've discovered that part of what this podcast is is to speak to everybody that's been a part of getting us to where we are today and hearing about how you've learned it. And I was especially excited to hear that you actually learned about the subtypes directly from Naranjo. Is that right? Well, not initially, but nine years after learning about some of his work that was disseminated, some correctly, some incorrectly, I did have a chance to attend a long intensive with Naranjo, and that was like two years after I'd done my subtype research. Well, any style, which is how people see themselves, and the subtypes and tritype were all emerging at the same time. But people knew about subtype. So even though I was published on any style, I was also published with the instinctual subtype research. And when I met with Naranjo, ahead of time, he had seen my article in the Enneagram Monthly with any style, the nine languages of type and how people, the vocabulary they use, how they want to look, how they see themselves, was published like, uh, I think it went out in 1996, but other things on subtype, my chart and things had come out. Immediately gravitated towards subtypes because it defined a difference, at least that was in the public domain to some degree. And in 1994, when we had the first Enneagram conference before the IEA, the first conference, most of the people in attendance, and it was over a thousand people, did not know subtype. So there was a huge difference in how the types were defined. And then later, I was able to gather a much larger mailing list and see how those things played out. I was fascinated by the difference because I remember sitting in certification courses and just workshops 
where people would have the same type. Very different. Yeah. What triggered their type was very, very different. And I remember working with people that would be the same type. Like one time I had three ones that were on a project together with a major company and they couldn't agree. And I had to help them understand that they had three different subtypes of the type one. And that what was happening is they each were trying to make sure that they were doing what was right. Yeah. And it took a while, actually. But once they understood that, they could shift and then create something together that was cohesive, that would be in the best interests of everyone. Well, and I think that this is an ENTP superpower. I'm going to acknowledge I have type loyalty here. But I think that the ability to use introverted thinking to rise a little bit above the fray and just notice why are these people attached to what it is that they're attached to here. And when you see it, it's kind of like, oh, you know, as orators and people who enjoy speaking, we can often explain things in a way that if somebody has any ears to hear, that they might start to gain a little bit of an opening And it really can help us to understand each other better when moments ago we were really at odds with each other. Is that how you experience it? Yeah. And that's why I use everything, you know, body language, visual archetypes, all the things that I learned early in my career. I knew before I found the Enneagram, I knew Myers-Briggs. I was already certified in that and used it with staffing, but it was like the Enneagram was the one system that held all the others. Yeah. And it was indisputable. And so a lot of what I was kind of looking at from many other perspectives just fell into place with the Enneagram. And okay. that I didn't go on to explain as many subtypes of the MBTI types or body language, I could still see if it supported the type. And if it didn't, then what did that mean? And were all the archetypes defined Mm -hmm. in the very beginning? And they weren't. Naranjo said he only saw very few. And over time, he looked at other archetypes within type. But in the very beginning, they were fixed and overly fixed on certain archetypes. So. In a way, I would later add, like the eight was the warrior king or mm-hmm. queen. And yet a one could be a king or a queen, but in a different way mm-hmm. than the way eight would manage power. And in all fairness, the other thing that happened is the Enneagram was new in 1970 when it was first disseminated in its early form in Eureka, Chile. But then Naranjo added the psychological components. So then that was different from Achazo. Now, they did kind of speak initially, but then Achazo took some of what Naranjo added out Mm -hmm. and held on to his own viewpoint. And Naranjo did the same. He wanted to work more with the psychological perspectives as well. So we have then different or different Enneagrams, however you want to look at it. Right. So depending upon where you get your information from, will inform how you're teaching, will inform how your students are hearing, will inform sort of 
where we're landing today, if we check in and say, what is my view on all of this? There is a lineage that this is all attached to. Yeah. And like Berkeley had the subtypes and that was considered west of the Great Divide. And then the bigger group of people was through Oaks, which was east of the Great Divide. But he never knew the subtypes because he spent six months with Naranjo in the Seekers After Truth in the very first group of the 18 months. So he didn't know about it. So he didn't disseminate it. So I'm actually trying to shift from being a practicing medical doctor into doing typology and coaching and I don't know what else. I'm on a journey. But for me, I, I've i been also into typology for a very, very long time. Found Myers-Briggs, then found the Enneagram. I'm now approaching Myers-Briggs with a coach that really brings in the Jungian psychology and all of the functions and the cognitive functions. Thank you. (laughs) I was alluding me and how there is this deep psychology inside of the Myers-Briggs system, which is also different than just when we use like MBI, like typing for work or whatnot, you actually can use that as a growth tool. And what's kind of lit up inside of me is that I feel like understanding your instinctual stack is one thing. Understanding your Enneagram type is another thing. And understanding your Myers-Briggs cognitive functions is yet something else unique. And I don't know if this is just how it's living inside of me, but there's something law of three-ish between incorporating those three systems that really helps me when I'm doing my own typing and or coaching and trying to see, oh, this might be where this person is stuck. And I kind of ride around those three systems like the triangle, the three, six, nine, and just, you know, find them to really inform each other. Do you think that, so when I heard you say that the Enneagram includes them all, why do you think that I'm feeling sort of this need to tease out and say, ooh, I feel like there's something in. But I'm not negating MBTI at all. No, I know you're not negating it, but isn't there another something special or not really? Let me say it in a particular way. Sure. The instinctual types, Mm -hmm. therefore the 27 subtypes, are the primitive part of the personality, the most primitive. Okay. And the type or tri-type. Yep. Whatever you want to look at it is how we're going to go about trying to handle what our instinct has triggered. That's a threat to resources. It's a threat to security or weight. That's a threat to belonging. That is what triggers the tri-type to go into action, being the CEO of that. But how we then end up executing it isn't just with the tri-type. It's with the instinct, the tri-type, and yeah, it's the MBTI. Because- oh, I love that. You just brought me so much clarity. And you know, there's nothing better for an ENTP than that little, because it's like, I'm knowing that these three things are related, but I hadn't quite pulled it together that way. So thank you. Okay. I want to say it one more time, because then that way I'll know I'm understanding you. And maybe listeners will want to hear it one more time too, is that the instincts are what are firing first. And I've had conversations with Deborah Uten where she puts this on the spiral at like the beige level. It's like we're just instinctual beings with no conscience, no nothing. And she calls that beige. It's basically the instincts. So those are firing. And then the Enneagram and the subtype, like so what your stack and Enneagram type is, as well as tri-type, 
is informing how you carry out the strategies of the instincts. And then the Myers-Briggs or your cognitive functions is how you might show up in the world with that agenda and the strategies that you might choose. Yeah, the process style. The process style. Can you define process style? An introvert's going to go inward and then let's say they're an ISTJ. They're going to look at all the details and how they need to be. And they're going to be anxious until they execute it in a very particular way from A to Z. Whereas an INFP Mm -hmm. is going to do that very differently. They're going to still be introverted, but they're going to look at the details on a level of intuition and what they feel first and then what it might mean. And so you could have the same instinctual stacking and the same tri-type stacking, but be a different MBTI. Yeah. And you really need all three in my yeah, opinion. Thank you. Well, and I think because some of the things that I care so deeply about is nonviolent communication and relational repair and how does rupture happen. I think that that's why adding MBTI and the Jungian cognitive functions to Enneagram and subtype feels so important to me because it really feels like this is how we're interfacing with each other. We want to understand the underlying motivations that are going on. But at the end of the day, we have to interface in some way. And if you know cognitive functions, you're going to be more skillful in how you interface with somebody. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That was great. Whew, I need like a minute to just <laughs> settle my nervous system after so much excitement. Okay. <laughs> some people Sorry. might say as an eight that's an ENTP, I can never have too much. Right? <laughs> and that's true. Too much is almost enough. Not quite. And I'm still open to other things. And as I learn new things, they're integrated, which is why I, I then ended up taking anything I'd ever learned and doing correlations with the Enneagram. And that was really unheard of yeah. in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. At first, it was like, what? Well, that that doesn't mean anything. I go, well, let me teach you about it and see if you still agree it doesn't yeah. mean anything. And of course, it meant a lot to people once they understood so that is an example of a key correlation that you studied that was really helpful for the community. I mean, there's probably so many, but just for an example. I'd studied Horne before I knew the Enneagram. So that was helpful. The inner conflicts. I correlated that very early. When you say Horne and the Hornevian groups, are these assertive versus withdrawn versus dependent? Or is it positivity versus emotionally react realness? Versus competency, I get confused which ones are labeled No, I just studied Our Inner Conflicts, the book with Karen Horney. Oh, okay. What happened is the first person to disseminate a correlation with the Hornavian triads, as we would now call them, was Ted and Kathy. And that's Kathleen Hurley and Theodore Donson, who was originally Ted Dobson. Okay. They first applied Karen Horney to the Enneagram in a way that was disseminated. But actually, Naranjo did it from the very beginning when he was trying to take all his knowledge and he loved Karen Horney. He then took her teachings and then put them in the different buckets of the nine types. Some people think oh, he went, oh, this is a certain type. But instead, he went with all these typologies he already knew and then just put them in the buckets, and then it came out being the type as he saw it. 
the assertive versus withdrawn. This is this is what the Hornavian triads. Well, it's not just assertive and withdrawn. It's resignation, not just withdrawn. So okay. it, it's a giving up. It doesn't necessarily mean you are withdrawn in your personality. Got so you, I just have a broader view of all the words Karen Hornet used. And dependent is one way that she would look at it. Adapting is another. Negotiating the space. It was all based on a study. Okay. If you, you understand the study, then you'll understand why all the words are important. And, and assertive is, is what other words go with assertive? Yeah, pretty much. That one's easy. Okay. <laughs> it was just basically toddlers that were separated from their mother by these little, a false wall. That could easily be knocked over. And what she noticed is some toddlers pleaded with the mother. And that's what we'd now say is compliant or dependent. And other toddlers pleaded with the mother. The mother didn't come. So they went back to just resignation. Yeah. Focusing on themselves and not looking towards rescue from the mother. And then the assertive types, in essence, you know, if the mother did not respond, they went up and knocked down the wall, which were these cardboard walls. So you you could knock it down. But what I found and wrote about in the 80s, and then it, it was one of my articles for my certification with Riso and Hudson, was that each center has one of those. And then there's a type within each center. So it's three times three. And then you get a more accurate perspective on why the type is the way they are and why they're lookalikes. So I did that. I correlated body language. I correlated microexpressions. I correlated empathy in the Enneagram. Anything that I ever was interested in. Archetypes, facial archetypes that I actually learned. Do you have a library on your website of all of your writings and or recordings? Like, you know, if we want to go investigate and hear about all these correlations, specifically like your original research. There's usually a, a recording of something on the product page. And if not, it would be on the home page where I have blogs and um, free talks. Yeah. Well, because it would just be so fun to just, I mean, I'm into lineage now. So really kind of backing up to where all of this stuff comes from and even just watching you discovering it as you were discovering it across your career, I think would be really fun to kind of experience. Yeah, I think it makes a difference because with each piece of knowledge from a different person, so first exposures, I mentioned 1985, and then I just applied it to what I already knew and used it with my clients and taught to those who said, ah, can you please teach about this? And of course I did, but I wasn't formally certified until 1995. And the stimulus for that was the 1994 conference when I realized, whoa, people are defining these types so differently. But David Daniels really tried to come up with a universal description of the type. So I was a part of his first committee to save the IA because it was a concept in 1994, but people didn't have time to execute it. So we decided that the conference should be about bringing together the different teachings and finding what we could that was universal. Oh, I love that. It was 1996, and it was 
huge because we all came together as a community or a lot of us did and different teachers taught a type and why they felt the way they did. And we could see what maybe one school had learned that another hadn't. And the main thing, of course, being the instincts subtypes that I was talking about. And so they had my book and then I basically went all over the country teaching subtypes to the schools of thought that did not include them. And they were all via Oaks in some way, Robert Oaks, yeah. because he didn't learn them. So that was not disseminated. All the so Don and Don didn't teach them. Don and Russ right. didn't teach them till 1998. Okay. Wow. Uh, do you think anything like what happened in 1994 is happening now? Does that happen at IEA conferences or... Is the community, all the disparate parts coming together in any way that you know of right now? Well, in 1994, there were groups. You needed to be this or that or this school or that school. And like I was known by many for certifying with all the schools of the early teachers, but trusted by no one at first. Until they realized that I respected the work of each teacher and I learned something unbelievably important, multiple things from each school of thought. Yeah. And and then it just continued when when Naranjo finally taught again and I was able to learn that. Then I revised. I brought all the people I taught for nine years and I said, you know, there were some things that were inaccurately disseminated. I brought all the people back in and did a free couple workshops on retyping some people, teaching them nuances of the types. And also people learned a lot from 1971 to 1996. That's a long time. And I think we're still learning. Don't you think we're still learning and discovering? Yes. Yes. And but two things are happening. People are learning and making wonderful additions. And people didn't have the fundamentals and are making incorrect additions. It's yes. just the nature of things. Yes. And the biggest problem actually is the dissemination on the internet. If someone actually attends a workshop or class, they're going to have a much greater understanding. But so many people want to learn on the internet. They don't realize what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Yes. Unconscious incompetence, I think we call it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like to be consciously incompetent. And that's why I, <laughs> I, I don't like that. I like to be unconsciously competent. <laughs> well, well, I mean, yes, in another, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years. Yes, I have to get there too. But right now, like the, the podcast really was my awareness of how much unconscious incompetence is out there. And I'm on my journey to gain competence, like any good three would be. And I just really want to talk to any and everyone, both those that are doing their own certifications, their own research, are clearly thought leaders in the field. But my podcast is also just everybody out there interviewing them on how they've arrived at their type, how they've arrived at their subtype. And I'm inviting people like me, who may have heard some things correctly and some things incorrectly. And I'm sort of layering on what I'm learning to just invite them in to say, oh, and have you considered it from this perspective? Because I do think that there is 
confusion out there. And I would love to just bring more clarity, like even in terms, like words that we use. One person will use a certain word meaning one thing, and one person uses a word and is talking about something completely different. So that's that little accuracy love that I yeah. have of clarity. And it depends on who they learned it from, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I can tell who studied with whom by the way they define the types and what they lead with, what they consider important. Yeah. And then people who are cross-trained have a broader perspective, in my yeah. opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the instincts since you've done so much research in this field. And you also shared an article with me that I had one of those like mind blown moments. And I don't even know you've written so many. I don't know if you remember which one it was. So I'll just remind you like what it was that landed with me because I'm really curious about the idea of the blind spot, the stack, like when you talk to some teachers, people believe that all of the instincts are always present, but that they're firing maybe with different frequencies and intensities. And I'm curious, like, how wedded are you to the idea that everybody has a stack, everybody has a blind spot? And if you do feel like you have some consciousness around all three instincts and how they're functioning inside of you, do many of us get to a place where we actually have a healthy relationship with all three? Or what's your perspective on all of that? Well, bringing them into consciousness, I think, is really critical. It's important to understand. Oscar Chazo called the three centers the instinctual triads. So when Naranjo came up with the word subtypes, he actually took Chazo's three triads and put all three of them under each type. It, it was magnificent, actually, because it created like the overview of the the wholeness and the law of three and seven, but then broken into these three triads, which Naranjo later called centers of intelligence, was in the public domain. And he didn't want to violate Oscar Chazo's copyright. So the reason people are confused or they think maybe that subtypes is not a good word is that they don't realize that Naranjo was talking about the Chazo's triads that were instincts. And so Naranjo just saw him as a more primitive expression of what a Chazo recognized. So if you go to Arikans, they don't know anything about subtypes because yeah. even though a Chazo was attributed with them, it wasn't and isn't a part of that work. Well, and I could see confusion around calling them centers because my mind goes to like heart center, gut center, head center. And it sounds like when you were talking about Chazo's centers, that those were the instincts, which is something different. He based it on three questions that the organism, being us, needed to answer. And so really, it went off, and they're, they're different things now. But if you understand the origins, then you understand something I think is important, which is that the hard types are trying to figure out what image they need to portray to be safe. Mm -hmm. And that we all have an image. We all have a mask. And what is that mask? Now, originally with the teachings, by the way, it was a, a movement from 
nature to nurture in the 60s and 70s. But now brain science kind of played out in an important way to show it's both. That we're born with our type, but our identifications, how we are with each type was whether or not it was accepted in our family system or was it a problem with our family system or school or peers. And so anyhow, the heart type is like, what image do we need to portray? So we each have a heart type. In order to be safe. Yep. And regardless of your stack. Regardless of the stack. Okay. The stack becomes important later. And then our head type is telling us what we need to know or learn to be safe. Okay. And usually we're going to look to our peers to either be like them or separate from them. Either they're dangerous or they're, they're not. And then the gut type is what do we need to remember and what can we sense physically? Mm. Like what's our recorded memory? What's like introverted sensing SI, it sounds like. Yeah. And it's also kind of like the example I give is if, if there's a certain quality to the light or the sun and the weather and, and we think, oh, wait, that's what it was like when that peach tree was blooming. Okay, I need to remember where that was and and go find it. And it's symbolically, if we look at the most primitive form, we can find what's true faster, I think, than if we try to do it in a current way. But we all have all three of those. And then Achazo went on to give a really great explanation, conservation for the gut types, relation for the heart types, and originally syntony for the head types, but he changed it to adaptation because you're adapting to your peers and to the circumstances. But really the subtypes were just sub So now put the subtypes on top of that, because now you just gave us those three what the question is or the strategy is for the person of each of those centers. Can you it's now like, put the- who am I with? Are you a friend or foe for yeah. the heart types? Yeah. Are you going to stab me in the back and steal my stuff? Or are you going to make sure other people don't steal it from me? So you're going to create a bond of certainty and security, not like the six things, unless they're sexual six, but just like, okay, who do I need to have a bond with? And then the social is like, wait, are people friends or foes? Are they siblings? Are they enemies? Who are they? Mm-hmm. And how do I need to protect myself? Are the people with the stripes going this way the ones that are going to offer me food or the ones that are going to take my food? It, yep. it's, it's seeing groups and threats in terms of groups mm-hmm. and individuals, mm-hmm. not the one that's going to you know, be in harmony, but the the group. Well, where do I need yep. to belong? There's safety and security in numbers. Yep. And then the gut type is like, what resources do I need to have? And mm. how do I need to defend them, protect them? And they'll fight for their resources. So you could have someone that is, feels threatened around resources and then people go, oh, that's an eight. Well, no, maybe they're just worried about the resources and that activates the energy, which is why Naranjo's subtypes were so incredible because it kind of showed what's activated. And then when it's at the level of the centers rather than the subtype, it's not as primitive. It's what role do we need to have? Right. It's a more conscious, neutral, average 
perspective, but the instinct says, oh, no, you're going to die if you don't have this. Yeah. So just to be clear, so as a three, I would say I'm going to die if my image isn't the way it needs to be to have connection. Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's not just connection because that's more the um, subtype. Okay. So what subtype do you identify with? Well, I mean, with all of these different frames, I can put myself in lots of different places. But what you're saying is actually lighting things up for me because I've identified as self-pres three, primarily because safety feels like a big concern for me. But I feel like I navigate safety through image, how you're seeing me. So sometimes people have thought that I'm a six or a one, which I know is a common mistyping with a self-pressed three. And I think that the reason that that's happening now is that as I'm connecting more with that angsty six that, you know, lives inside every three and my mother is a self-pressed one. So I have a lot of object relations around that one-ishness. Imprinting. imprinting. It's imprinting. Exactly. So I identify as self-pressed three. Now, a lot of people think I'm a sexual three because I like being beautiful and I like attraction and I spend a lot of mental energy thinking about my romantic and one-to-one, you know, partnerships. Now, social, to me, I feel like three is a social type. I'm a three with a two wing. I mean, I'm oriented towards people, but... I know the difference of when I'm engaging with you in a social way versus when I'm engaging with you in a more sexual, instinctual way. Like this interview feels like my sexual, instinctual energy. It's one-to-one, it's juicy, it's, you know, as a three, like I'm noticing that there's an attachment here where I'm like, oh, I hope Catherine likes me and wants to talk to me (laughs) again in the future. I mean, I'm just being honest, like that's what's going on inside of my agenda. I'm not worried about my safety. You don't feel like a dangerous eight to me. I'm not worried about my belonging. I don't know. I I, I want to belong, but I only want to belong to the groups that I want to belong to, you know, so, which happens to be thought leaders. I would love to belong to that group, emerging thought leaders, you know, and people who are really curious and trying to take the work seriously, however we want to define that. I mean, that's how I'm working with it. And I've gotten a lot of different feedback from a lot of different people who come from a lot of different schools. So that's why I think that it's confusing. I kind of go back to Naranjo since he created them. Okay. And the three, self-pressed three is an interesting character because on one level, the self-pressed three can be quite ruthless in Mm -hmm. pursuing. They can seem like eights. They can pursue what they need to survive and just like push everything else aside. But then there's another soft side to the self-press three that can be quite caring of others, but they usually have sexual second. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've wondered if I'm social blind because I make social faux pas and it's always because I'm excited or I'm curious or I'm jumping in and I didn't pause And I didn't consider how this might be for another person, which is why I love having more information with Myers-Briggs and type. And because if I know that about you, I'm remembering mistakes that I've made before and I'm modulating the way that I interface with you so that I don't trigger some fear response, something because that's not what I'm intending. And of course, there are people that trigger me. And of course, I have a mean streak. And of course, I poke people or, you know, like... 
I know when that's there living inside of me too. And I get, I can get angry. I mean, you know, if you're, if you are seeming like you're directly in front of a goal and when you're talking about the ruthlessness, there are moments in my life where I have become really, really fixated. And I mean, I'll just go ahead and I mean, listeners know this. My ex-husband withdrew my child support. And when he entered a new one-to-one relationship and the dynamic changed and he's very financially powerful and he went into his nine, eight wing self-pres stance of finally expressing displeasure to me in a very way that I perceive to be violent. And I absolutely refused to allow myself to be defeated around my child support because that felt like the core with which I pay my kids tuition and that we maintain our lifestyle. And there was all this stuff around fairness. Like why does the white male with money get to squash the woman who has been raising the kids and been gathering less resources? It was much around my outrage at having my financial security and stability threatened just because we got in a fight, you know, like that was kind of, what was going on inside of me. Now, the fight that we had was much more around, we had always still shared holidays and still did the graduation dinner together. And this new partner who was probably sexual dominant did not want me at any of these things anymore. Yeah, I was just going to say with the nine, self-pres nine in particular, they're going to take the shape and the values of the new partner for their own safety and peace of mind. It's right. not, you just were caught in the cross. And that's what activated me because I saw that happening and I wanted him to see that I didn't think that he was honoring agreements that we had first around our children, but it, he wanted the ease of going with the new partner's agenda. And I just was like, hell no. And I fought a two and a half year court battle and ended up losing a hundred thousand dollars, but ended up being found right And that was good enough for me and got reinstated. So that to me activated some very primal thing inside of me that I had never actually gotten that dysregulated by before. And that felt very self-prezzy to me, but I'm curious to hear what you would say. Uh, I think if you're looking out for your kids, that that social proceeds, it's not either. It's not any of the instincts. It's like all of them together. (laughs) They would be marshaled together. And so your other question was, can we use all of them? Absolutely. Like in 1996, it was thought you used one. Right. But I quickly saw in interviewing people that we used all three, but in a stacking order, we used our types in a stacking order. Everything was a stacking order. It really didn't matter what system I was correlating. It was still a stacking order. And if you understood the stacking order, then you could better understand how to navigate the situation. Well, and what's confusing for me is that dad was an ESTJ8 and mom's an ESFJ1. And so growing up, and they were both self-pres social sexual blind. So as a three, I had to shapeshift into doing what they would think was successful, which was grades, which was school, which was becoming a doctor, which was gaining financial independence, which was getting married and having children. Like this was the script. And I executed on that. Now, when I started waking up and realizing there's a lot of things about my life I don't like right now, 
that aren't authentic and true to me, there was this phase where I just kind of wanted to throw it all off, you know, got divorced, quit my job, stayed, being a good mom always stayed really important to me. And that was like a really strong priority. But for me, it was also the divorce was prompted by the fact that we had an open marriage and that I had a lover that I now wanted to be with. And so we ended up moving in together and having a life for seven years. So it was almost like the sexual instinctual energy that activated, that had me throw off the self-pressed social obligations that I was agreeing to as an adaptable three to my parent figure, my nurturing figure. And, you know, now the sexual instinctual energy just feels like something that I'm not willing to ignore anymore. Like I want to allow it to have this seat at the table. So when I read your article about how it did feel like I was very neurotic around paying off med school debt and paying the mortgage and having my child support and all of these things, which feel very self-prezzy. If I was sexual blind, it came into awareness, also woken up by an actual sexual relationship. And even though I'm not in that relationship anymore, I like kind of realized the juiciness and the sweetness of now living my life more, not just trying to do the self-pressed social perfect script, but actually checking in and saying what feels more juicy, authentic, alive, and true. It feels like my sexual is really important to me now too, and I'm always holding both of them. And social feels like the It doesn't one... come on and offline. Okay, yeah. It's like, it's the lens through which we're viewing everything. Okay. So we know it's not sexual in your lead because okay. you have been able to manage an open marriage because it immediately violates the security that the yep. sexual needs Got of it. the one. That's what I thought too. I thought that the fact that I could do that now though, I recognize that I never actually felt seen or special. And so now in my relationships, I'm really curious about that. And I, and I, you know, my opinions about polyamory and monogamy and open marriage are complicated. Um, and that comes from my own direct experience of realizing how heartbreaking it was on one level not to feel special and to have this self-pressed sexual seven with an eight wing come in and see me and connect with me in a way that I had never experienced before kind of woke me up to the sweetness of something that I don't have somebody like that in my life now, but it feels really important. Probably being mirrored too, accurately mm -hmm. mirrored yeah. by someone adoring would yeah. usually be what would bring out that feeling of sweetness, regardless of your instinct. People that are self-pressed, social, they can literally have that awakened and then kind of the need for that closeness. But it, with the sexual, it's always there, even if you go long periods without it. Yeah. And I'm curious. So you think that people who are polyamorous can't be sexual dominant? Is that a thought? You've never met one. They okay, might think they are, but no, because you're not safe. Right. It has to be over several people. Right. It's like, where's the investment and the mutual investment? And we are one. Right. I am this with this person, this with this person. And I, ha I yep. have no judgment. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. So the fact that I'm a little more open in that domain, I always, do you know the Kinsey scale that they now use to describe sexuality? I think we need a Kinsey scale to describe monogamy and polyamory. Because, you know, I kind of feel monogamish. 
<laughs> in that I like monogamy when it's working. I think it's great, but it's not a requirement. And I think if you're sexually dominant, it's a requirement. You don't have to get married, but it's a requirement that you're yeah, the one. Exactly. And if you're not the one, then stress comes up in a greater measure. So do you where, think a sexual dominant and a sexual blind could be happy together? Or do you think there's an inherent incompatibility or are they bringing good things I mean, to each other? Let me just say that the word blind came from me. Okay. Because <laughs> what I discovered is that the third instinct, people seem to be blind to. And I said that the second instinct was like kind of easy, yeah. that the first instinct troubled us. But then after about 18 months and working with people, I discovered something really critical. And that is that once you get your stacking and have it in the accurate order, that third instinct matures really quickly. That's how I feel. Blind. Yeah. Well, when and they, they even say experienced, yeah. but not blind. Absolutely. And so I feel a little clumsy in it. I feel clumsy in my sexual instinct. Just not even in, even in finding my flavor and like, I'm trying to do a website and I'm trying to pick pictures and colors and the look. And like, I'm really stressed out about this because I feel like image is important, but I'm like really doing deep work on like authentically, like what is my flavor and my scent and what is, am I attracted to and not? And I have to be very conscious of that. It is not automatic for me. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Whereas what I also found that's important, you have to work with your first instinct mm -hmm. first, the dominant instinct. But the most difficult instinct is the second. Yeah. Because we're quite arrogant about it. We think, yeah, yes. that's the problem. We handle that just fine. But therein lies the hidden piece that we have to work out. Once we've identified the third, worked on the first, yep. the one that's almost impossible to unseat is the second instinct because we think it's not a problem. And, and that's what was mind blowing for me. When I read that you wrote that, it clicked in for me because I always thought I did social really well as a three with a two wing. And as I've been putting myself out there more authentically with more transparency in more community, welcoming in more direct feedback, I mean, you just need to look at my podcast reviews to see my social blind spot advertised. It's like people say I'm self-absorbed and people say I interrupt. And I mean, I, I do these things, you know, and I'm now like looking at them and knowing that it's going to take a lot of practice to get, you know, more competency there in those little subtle areas that are annoying. Yeah, and I'm, I'm too monotone. So like when I'm delivering information, I'm not modifying it and couching it in a way. And I, even though I, I've worked on it, I still tend to be just like factual, just yeah. name the facts and not consider the emotional impact when I'm just answering questions. Now, if I'm working with someone, that's a totally different story, but I tend to miss like dynamics that are important because they wouldn't be important to me. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm positively identified with social, it is mm -hmm. third. So I kind of don't get why people do some of the things they do socially, mm -hmm. positively and negatively. What would and be an example of something that you just don't get? Like that people need to be introduced and welcomed in a certain way that is more universal. 
And really, it's for the socials, by the way. The, the self-pres doesn't really care in the same way, and neither does the sexual. But there are plenty of socials, so yeah. they need to be factored in. And in groups, I would really focus on helping people develop a personal connection to each other yep. to create the group. But if you didn't lead with sexual, that could be disconcerting. So I learned to do activities that engage all three instincts, all mm. three centers. Yeah. And that's much, much better. But in an interview, I forget all that. It's just yeah. like, I'm just answering questions. So yeah. I'm just saying what's true and adjusting what might be misunderstood. Well, I love all my social dominant friends for pointing out the ways that I don't do social right. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> to all of my, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, this is how we learn. We have to like really get work on our relationship to feedback. And I think that when we develop a little bit more security and in what's inside of us and work through some of that shadow stuff that we hate seeing, but I say do a podcast. You'll see all of your worst things when you're just riffing with somebody. Do a video. <laughs> right, exactly. Do a video and then you'll find out exactly what makes people uncomfortable. All right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, because it it's a different rapport because in the moment of the interview, it's just the two of us. Right. But then when it goes out or Q&A, then all of a sudden you realize what maybe you didn't emphasize or say more clearly or got lost in the shuffle. So people mm -hmm. make assumptions. Yeah, we need long interviews. To be well, and when I'm doing a podcast interview, like I'm seeing you on Zoom so there's a ton of communication happening between us that listeners don't get to pick up on at oh, all. Right. right, which is why I wanted the video right. for what I disseminate. Yeah. yeah, because it's very critical. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and as I get more competent, I would love to be able to have these podcast interviews seen on a YouTube channel where people can see the video as well. I just haven't worked it out yet, you know, which how to is do what that. I will, I will put it on yeah, yeah. Awesome. So yay. People can see this. Okay. Yes. Yes. yes they and, will. They yeah. Will I think they'll hear so it probably a lot earlier than they'll see it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure to, you let me know when a link to the video is there and I'll announce that on the podcast. So anybody that heard this interview can know how and where to find the video. Yeah. I also want to say like when my editor is editing this, it's really funny when I interview nines and fives, he takes out so much pause. <laughs> yeah. Because, and I used to not allow the pause, like pauses made me anxious, I realized. So I was often feeling silence. And that was such an important thing for me to see and learn. But I'm also like, oh, yeah, but the listeners aren't having the same experience that I am. I'm about to release an episode tomorrow where I was typing somebody that I'm pretty sure is a nine. And I actually narrated a little bit of what I was seeing because he's also an introvert. Because there was all this stuff going on that I was picking up on that I'm like, listeners are going to have no idea. So I think when you listen, whatever judgments that you're arising at may be true. And maybe there was something going on in the dynamic that you're just not seeing. No, usually the type that is, I mean, the nine is a resigned type. It's it's the resigned aggressive. So the center is aggressive, eight, nine, and one. Mm -hmm. But of the aggressive types, the nine is resigned. Yeah. So it's the withdrawn aggressive. So that would make total sense. But if they mobilize, then you're going to experience something like you experienced 
a, a nine if they're coming from something that doesn't make sense to you. It, it makes sense to them on some level. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, this was so fun. Thank you so much. I have a secret fantasy that we'll do another interview at another time about something else. I don't know what, but I'm just so happy to have this connection and to be meeting you. And I just think this was such a great addition to my collection. I hope it's a sweet addition to yours as well. Yes. Yes. I'm very happy to do it. Thank Thank you. you, It's a pleasure. It really is. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation. consultation.